It doesn't take a whole lot of time on pilgrimage in the Holy Land before you start to learn to take some of the historic identifications of the holy places with a grain of salt. It's not that there aren't certain holy sites that scholars think could perhaps be authentic. A couple of weeks ago at Easter, I mentioned the Church of the Resurrection in Jerusalem, and there are others that could be the places where these things happened. But when 20 centuries have supplied enough piety and enough pilgrims and enough potential for profit, holy sites do tend to pop up exponentially. And so it is that there are at least two birthplaces of John the Baptist, at least two places where Jesus and his disciples had the Last Supper, and at least four contenders to be the biblical town of Emmaus. And so those who visit the Holy Land looking for places to pray and places to venerate the mysteries of the faith tend to find what they're looking for. Those who go seeking to pinpoint the precise location where they happened may well come away disappointed. So back in 2009, Julia and I arrived at the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter, which is the spot on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where this story took place. It's the spot where Jesus appeared to his disciples and cooked them breakfast and commissioned Peter to feed his flock. Our group of pilgrims celebrated the Eucharist at an outdoor altar on the grounds and then toured the chapel built over a flat rock, which is called the Mensa Christi, the Table of Christ, the very rock where Jesus built the charcoal fire and spread out the loaves and fishes. Unless, of course, it was that other rock <laughs> a couple hundred yards down the shore or perhaps that other beach a mile or two down the shore. Who can, who can really say? But as we stood there, outside the chapel, looking at the turquoise water lapping at the rocky shore, I realized that this place felt right. Over 20 centuries of time, cities come and cities go, buildings are built and buildings vanish, trees, streets. But the sea, the sea today is still about the same as it was then. So contemplating this story in that place was easy. Now they call this church the primacy of St. Peter. And primacy is a grand sort of word, and if you're into celebrating the authority of the papacy, then perhaps that's the aspect of this story that works for you. But as I imagine Peter in this story, it doesn't sound as though he's feeling very primatial. There he sits huddled in his soaking clothes, huddling by a charcoal fire as the rest of the disciples make their dry way back to shore. This is now the third time, it says, that the Lord has shown himself to the disciples. So there has already been joy and there has been astonishment and the reality has sunk in that Jesus is risen. But for Peter, there's something that remains unaddressed, an awkward, unwelcome memory. It happens that there are only two places in the New Testament that mention a charcoal fire. Both of them are in the Gospel of John. One of them is here. And the other is just three chapters back. And we heard it, read right here, what feels like a lifetime ago, but is only just over two weeks 
in the Passion Gospel of Good Friday, the story of Jesus' trial and death. And in that story, Peter is huddled around a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest, listening from afar as Jesus is questioned, and given the opportunity to remain faithful to Jesus, even to the point of sharing in his suffering, and doesn't take it. Peter takes the easier way out by denying three times that he even knows Jesus, just as the Lord had predicted. So how is it for Peter today, as he sits here dripping by this charcoal fire, one-on-one -on -one with the friend he betrayed, as he waits for the others to reach the shore? Is it too psychological, too much of a stretch to imagine the unspoken questions that fill his mind? Does Jesus even know what happened? Should I bring it up? What's this charcoal fire doing here anyway? Is this Jesus's way of trying to make a point? I have to tell him I'm sorry. Eh, wait, that's stupid. Maybe it's not such a big deal. If only I could stop feeling so awkward about it. There's a word for the experience of having an unnameable secret, something you can never let anyone else know about you. And that word is shame. Peter's shame is the shame that most of us know. I would say all of us know at some point in our lives. The conviction that we have done something or been something so unworthy that even to acknowledge it would feel like undergoing something like a death. And yet death is precisely what Jesus is in the act of defeating. So here by the rocky shores of the lake, he offers his disciples not death, but life. In what must surely be one of the most loving, intimate, ordinary lines in scripture, he says to them, come and have breakfast. He cooks for them. And he feeds them the same meal of bread and fish that he once fed 5,000 people by this same lake when he first told the disciples that he himself was the bread of life. And when the meal is over, he turns his attention again to Peter and asks him the same question three times. Do you love me? It's a threefold undoing of a threefold betrayal. Gently, insistently, Jesus repeats the question until it reaches the very core of Peter's shame. Twice, Peter tells Jesus, Lord, you know I love you. But the third time, it says he feels hurt. He feels pained. It has gotten to him. And this time, he blurts out, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And indeed, Jesus does know everything. He knows the betrayal. He knows the shame. And he knows the fierce love that Peter still holds, despite it all. He sees Peter inside and out and looks at him, not with condemnation, but with love. And as Peter's threefold confession of Jesus overcomes his threefold betrayal, Jesus puts him back in the role of the faithful disciple with that old familiar seaside call, follow me. So what about you? And what about me? 
Where are the places of shame for you? What are the things that trap you, that fill you with fear, and that make you a slave to death? I know in my life, and I imagine it's the same for you, that the greatest sources of shame haven't always probably been objectively my worst actions or experiences. Usually, though, they are the most secret. Sometimes the things that trap us in shame are things we've done wrong, like Peter. Sometimes they are things that have been done to us. Sometimes they're our fault, sometimes very much not. What is always true is that the risen Jesus offers us forgiveness for what we have done wrong and healing for whatever it is that still traps us. Just as he does for Peter, he gently but insistently moves to the heart of our own ensnaredness and then calls us his faithful disciples and commissions us to follow him. Maybe that's the secret of the primacy of Peter. Not that he's the first among Christians in the sense of a ruler of the church, but in the sense that he's the first model for all of us of what it truly means to be healed by the risen Jesus and to be commissioned to serve in his name. I don't know for certain whether this story really happened on that rock in the church. I don't know whether that rock is really the table of the Lord. But what is certain is that the risen Lord continues to come to his disciples. He's here again this very morning to feed us with the bread of life. It is Easter. Our Lenten fast is broken. Our sin is forgiven. Our shame is healed. And this table of the Lord is about to be set. Come and have breakfast. <laughs>